This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network. And I'm speaking here with uh, Cyril Penarts. And Cyril's a neurophysiologist who has been looking at the, the red brain for uh, for quite a while, uh, in particular looking at, at how different areas in, in, in the red brain operate and interact in the context of different tasks. So now in, in your talk, you started with the notion of, of cognitive architecture. So why do you think that's, that's relevant? Uh, I brought it into the talk uh, because it's... Um a theme you see uh, recurring in every, uh, almost every um, session. Um, and it strikes me because, yeah, both in robotics you see the modular systems, um, but also in neuroscience, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, and in, b in both fields, uh, these questions mm -hmm. of communication, and coordination pop up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but so but it seemed to seem to um, look like you were emphasizing this notion. Of, well, we have different modules operating in this brain, and we have to think about how these modules communicate. Is that really how you think about it? Um, well, what I try to uh, emphasize is that yeah, there's evidence for different modules uh, anatomically in the brain, physiology, physiologically, uh, lesions will have selective effects on areas. So there are there are functional specializations. I think can say that um yeah the issue of how you get a flexible communication is is not really answered mm -hmm. um and it, it seemed uh, a relevant theme for robots as well or mm -hmm. other cognitive architectures but so but then that means in your research also the, the kind of work you were describing and we'll discuss in a bit more detail this this notion of let's say well-defined modules with well-defined communication channels between them is really like a sort of a guideline in, in how you investigate these different areas you study. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but of course, this happens a lot by um, human EEG research, uh, fMRI. But what, what we try to add is, is basically the neural coding also by way mm -hmm. of recording spike trains. Right. And the combination of... Um, uh, let's having a more mesoscopic measures of EEG mm -hmm. plus the detail spark trains uh, um, makes it more unique or uh, mm -hmm. more informative because now you see, for instance, all of that. That's, whereas there is specialization in the hippocampus and ventral stratum, uh, there are also commonalities, but mm -hmm. they are only uh, revealed if you have the spark trains and can look at this remapping phenomena by uh, uh, reward predictive mm -hmm. cues, for instance. Okay, well, but you sort of summarized now everything you're going to say in the future very rapidly. So, the, but the point is that um, you're saying, look, it might be nice to think about modules from a more microscopic perspective, like using EEG, but if we mm -hmm. don't have the detailed information at a physiological or anatomical level, we actually don't really know what we're talking about. Well, you can know what you talk about if you realize the limitations of the approach. Uh -huh. Right, okay. But, um, yeah, there, of course, there, with EEG, you have source localization problems. Mm -hmm. fMRI is better for spatial source, but not for time, so it's it's more volume average, slow mm -hmm. signal. So 
yeah, I think it's really important to to have the spike signals in millisecond resolution to right. look at the closer uh, mm -hmm. synchrony. And right, yeah. exactly. But then, so your your emphasis you place um, in your research and uh, also in, in in your presentation today focus very much on areas like the rental striatum and the hippocampus, and and you were defining or showing how these areas actually seem to follow a very specific kind of zoning of, of their organization. So can you say something about that? Uh, yeah, what I showed was the, the zonation of the striatum mm -hmm. uh, in relation to the frontal cortex. Um, second part of the talk is more about uh, sensory neocortex and the, the caudal parts. Yeah. Um, yeah, the zonation I think is interesting because uh, it shows how continuous the uh, innervation pattern is of the striatum. So uh, let's say you're lateral in the frontal cortex and then you find a specific dedicated area of reception in the dorsolateral striatum for mm -hmm. that, uh, more sensory motor, mm -hmm. detailed associations and probably habits. Um, and then as you follow the, the band more immediately, then you find the areas protecting more and more ventral so it's all mm -hmm. very nicely topographic, mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, this topography b exists between the hippocampus and the striatum, so ventral hippocampus, more in the, the ventral, uh, the most ventral part of the ventral striatum, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also uh, in agreement with the suggestion made that uh, there's not just a strict segregation within the striatum of, let's say, an actor and a critic, mm -hmm. uh, Central striatum, according to uh, the older scheme, as Andy Bartow proposed, it would mm. be the critic. Doing what? Basically forming uh, reward predictions mm -hmm. uh, based on, on the, the error feedback received from the, the dopamine cells. Mm -hmm. And then somehow the reward prediction signals would also be transmitted to the dorsal striatum acting as mm -hmm. actor. Uh, while there are indirect uh, pathways to do that, um, uh, we thought there's, there's actually more homogeneity across mm -hmm. the stratum in, in how the system works. Yeah, but does that mean, so So, so we look at it, so cortex, cortex provides massive input to the stratum, loops through this whole structure of the basal ganglia, and again, via the thalamus, goes back into the cortex of this massive loop, mm -hmm. right? Then we would have similar kinds of loops running towards the hippocampus, and... Um, now we see that there are zones, that means there is some sort of topography that specific areas are very um, specifically targeting certain regions in the in the stratum and then the loop through basal ganglia follow that, that zoning scheme. So this is now an anatomical construct. Mm -hmm. Does it have any functional consequences? Yeah, um, because uh, what people have done is, is make lesions at different sites in the stratum and test rats on different learning tasks and then uh, there's evidence to suggest that indeed you have most sensory motor coding of let's say very detailed motions like arm movements in the dorsolateral striatum uh, whereas this area when lesion is also impaired in uh, uh, stereotyped arm movements or habits uh, but if you go more ventral you find um, specific impairments of the association between action and the outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's more like making the head movement for a reward. That kind of association is not uh, properly made. And eventually you, f you have more um, 
influences of specific cues, mm-hmm. like lights, coffee cups, etc. Okay. And then uh, also space, mm-hmm. or spatial becomes important. So uh, seems to be a whole stream of information that differs in its content, but the mm-hmm. computational principles uh, we think are are the same mm-hmm. because, right. for instance, if you lesion the ventral striatum, you would lesion the critic, but mm-hmm. um, in rats or other animals, the dorsal striatum can still learn despite the absence of a ventral striatum. Right. Okay. So but then be- before we get to this, the actor critic uh, critic criticism. Um, so what you're saying is, look, we have um, these loops, these these um, cerebral basal ganglia loops. They have um, specific qualities. Mm-hmm. That can be action. That can be cue, so sensation. That can be value or internal state, motivational state, or space. Mm-hmm. How many of these qualities do we have? You think? Mm, you mean qualities as dimensions? Of well, yeah, to, to, mm. to, or different modalities, if you want. Yeah. Like we have cue, yeah. action, motivation, space. What's missing from this list? Um, I don't think we, we miss very much. Um, sometimes you could use time as a, mm-hmm. as a cue, uh, sort of internal time when to expect a reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually time is accompanied by distinct signals uh, going along mm-hmm. with it. But we also uh, know now that yeah, the hippocampus, when time is relevant for a task, can encode uh, moments of time or mm-hmm. little well, episode okay. moments. So it, that could also be a mechanism to transmit timing information. Yeah. Okay, so the, if anything is missing, it would be time. And then it's not mm-hmm. obvious that time would be looping through these structures in the same way. Uh, right, not not as it is in the hippocampus. Yeah, the striatum or basal ganglia are probably important for uh, for the perception of time or the estimation of time mm-hmm. because drugs that typically work on striatum, like amphetamine, also change the perception of time, mm-hmm. uh, cannabinoids, etc. And that uh, might have more to do with uh, with these ramping responses that you see in the firing rate. So mm-hmm. when the animal is in a situation where he expects some cue to appear or reward to come you will already see cells increasing the firing rate slowly until it finally happens. And you believe that's an intrinsic property of these cells or of this structure? Of the loop, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this goes with the cortex. But but where's this time? Where's the the clock? Mm, Well, it's possible that there are pacemaker cells somewhere, but it's not so likely. Mm -hmm. The the dopamine cells have Mm -hmm. some pacemaker properties. But then the firing of those cells is also variable, mm-hmm. and they burst and reset. But it's so it's more it's more likely to be an emergent property of the whole circuit, yeah. I think. So it's not a cerebellum or so. Um, cerebellum is supposedly important for timing, but also in the very fine time domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight, it might be more for 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 longer stretches of time, like seconds. No, but that's uh, the beauty then of this scheme that you <coughs> that you didn't consider. Um, and we have to find out why, but that in some sense the, the striatum gives you a beautiful event-based system mm-hmm. with these different modalities or qualities that it processes, while it can then by by piggy or using the cerebellum, which is still about sixty percent of your brain, get high resolution time signals because you yeah. know the cerebellum's yeah. timing precision stops at about one second. 
Right. So, it's so you might have a dual loop, right? That you have sort of an event stream mm -hmm. across basal ganglia, hippocampus, cortex, and then a, a, a time, a real-time high-precision stream, an interval stream over cerebellum. Exactly. Yeah. Would you yeah. buy that as an as an explanation of time? Uh, as as a mechanism for for timing, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, timing of movement. No, but also the timing of these ramping responses, right? For expected rewards, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know how that would work in the cerebellum, but uh, do you know that? Yeah, if you let's say you train animals or humans on a sequence of movements like finger tapping, but now you change one key of the instrument, mm -hmm. and you make it hard to press. Then the cerebellum cells would notice that and adjust. You have to adjust the strength of your finger mm -hmm. tap on that. Uh, right. And mm -hmm. similarly with with timing issues. Mm -hmm. So, but also it sounds quite likely that cerebellum there is okay. for the fine no, timing and the. No, but but this this sort of little uh, uh, discourse or detour, if you want, uh, it was interesting to see whether notion of of, of cue action, uh, motivation and space would be the four main domains or whatever. We missed something fundamental, and now hmm. at least we invented a story, the two of us, that would in some sense suggests that we could leave time out. Hmm. We don't need to include time in those qualities. So. Yeah, at least not by a separate structure or so. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I, I do wonder yeah, how the cerebellar timing is coupled to the corticostriatal timing. Somehow, mm -hmm. Somewhere the thalamus is in between. Sure, no, there, there, are, there are dense projections between these structures, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. But, uh, but okay, this is outside a yeah. little bit of... of, of what you were presenting today, and also I don't think you ever yeah. measured from the cerebellum, did you? Uh, no, no, that's right. No, okay. so it's very global. Never, <laughs> it's never, it's never too late to start, you see. But then, okay, so now we have this idea of the zones. That's good. We have the four qualities, um, and now you, the key point you made on, on the basis of that is that look, these loops with these varying qualities also carry, if you want, motivation in one of these loops. So why separate action from motivation or why separate value now from, from action as you might do in an actor-critic system, right? It's more, it's more a distributed solution where if you want value and, and action are both processed on equal terms in some sense. Is that, is mm -hmm. that how you think about it? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, what, what you always see no matter what task the rat does or some other animal, you'll, you'll always see this uh, tessellation of sequence. That's also in the orbital frontal and medial prefrontal. So every little element of the task is, is basically coded. Uh, but then what to do with that? Well, we regard that sequence as a scaffold on which you, to which you can associate uh, things like reward value. Mm -hmm. Uh, which would mean that, in, in a sense, at the striatal level, you attach a weight to a particular action as being important because it's reward predictive or predictive of an hour outcome. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the only uh, exception could be that um, uh, habits are not strictly dependent on reward. You can delete reward and your habit will still keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but in a sense, uh, if you take the notion of outcome to be more abstract and not per se reward-related, you could also say, well, uh, an action itself, the completion of an appropriate action where you touch an object can also be uh, regarded as an outcome. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even for a, a learning infant, uh, being able to reach at some object could be regarded as an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. 
But the one thing I don't understand fully is that you're saying, well, um, you could attach a reward to single events. Like you have this tessellation of the response. Like it's sort of you're engaged in a task. Here I am. I'm the rat. I'm, I'm pushing all these levers and whatever. Uh, now, in my brain, is this sort of cortical stradal system and my hippocampus. I'm now decomposing this task in all its small elements. Mm -hmm. uh, relevant, irrelevant, doesn't matter. And now you're saying, I'm now tagging, if you want, some of these elements with um, with value, with, with reward predictions. Is this really what you have in mind? Yeah, yeah, basically, okay. yes. Um, where... Of course, yeah, if we train animals, the animals are trained in such a way that they will only do um, or perform these tasks if finally some reward is coming. Sure. So in a sense, we don't test for uh, real spontaneous behavior or behavior where there's no reward at all. Uh -huh. In the end, somewhere there will be a reward. Uh, so in that, in that sense, the, the sequence that you see might always have to do with the final outcome. Right. But now tell me... what. Well, Where's the site where this engram, <clears throat> so this memory trace of action reward is is established and maintained? Um, we don't know, but probably the corticostradal synapse itself could be mm -hmm. a, a good site for that. At least when it comes to associating, uh, for instance, place to reward um, or cue to reward mm -hmm. or, or uh, actions to mm -hmm. reward. Because um, then we have only to suppose that uh, uh, the hippocampal cells or the subicular cells, C or subiculum, uh, project to the striatum. They do. Uh, we know that there is plasticity in that connection. This, the fibers are glutamatergic. Um, so, in a fairly straightforward Hebbian way, uh, given the um, effect of reward feedback, there there can be a, a plasticity going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and this lines up with uh, the evidence, for the behavioral evidence mm -hmm. based on, on lesions and disconnections. So if you lesion the striatum in that loop where you have the place representation in, in the striatum mm -hmm. or place processing, yeah, do you see this system compromised or you see this behavior compromised? Right, yeah. So if you lesion, uh, in this case, the part of the ventral stratum, which receives most of the hippocampal input, mm -hmm. then you lose your uh, place reward association, or at least it's not behaviorally expressed. Mm -hmm. And if you lesion the hippocampus on one side and the this ventral stratum part mm -hmm. on the other side, it's also lost. Um, this could mean that uh, the place reward association is, association is still so, s stored somewhere elsewhere, mm -hmm. but at least the behavioral expression is lost. So mm -hmm. there's no... Uh, translation into invigorated actions. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's more natural to think that reward prediction is motivation. It's mm -hmm. as, as, right. as soon as you have a reward prediction, that's mm -hmm. enough to drive mm -hmm. the behavior. Yeah, because the point of what we're really talking about is that the animal is learning about places, right? It learns about locations in space. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's also associating, let's say, these reward predictions to locations in space or to some cues in the environment. But it can be either of the two. Yeah, or or both. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But does it also mean that if you interfere with plasticity specifically in this place system of the ventral striatum, that you then also don't see any acquired place preference? 
Uh, yeah, you can interfere with um, NMDA blockers, dopamine mm. antagonists also. And you will, uh, well, it's not been shown that place preference per se is impaired, but other learning processes mm -hmm. are impaired, like the Pavlovian auto shaping where you associate cues with reward. Okay. But I would not call actually, uh, not consider the ventral stratum as a place system because uh, the neural firing patterns are not that spatially specific. Mm -hmm. They're more um, specific for what you do at a certain mm -hmm. place. So uh, uh, we're here. Um, if you want to get coffee, uh, you know you have to get out of the room. Mm -hmm. So when you get up, there will be striatal cells firing, but that's relating to your action. Mm -hmm. but, uh, if, you had the, if you would get the coffee by going in the other direction, they would also fire, mm -hmm. or right. there would be other cells firing. Yes. Yeah. So that, these were these experiments you have been doing in this Y maze, right, where the animal could find reward at different sites. Uh, reward locations were indicated by a cue light, mm -hmm. and then the animal should just wait for this cue light to appear, and then it could go out and find the reward or not. Yeah. And in those experiments, you were particularly looking at the, the information exchange, if you want, between the hippocampus and the ventral striatum mm -hmm. with the idea, okay, hippocampus we know is, is, a, is dedicated among other things, to learning about location, space. So you will have these place fields that have very specific firing responses in certain positions in space. And the question is, is this information directly entering into this ventral striatal system or not? Was that really what you looked at? Uh, what I presented was not directly about the communication in terms of whether that's involving oscillations or so, but... Well, but look, let's say at the level of correlation between these structures. Yeah, 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 certainly. Yeah, well, to buttress it, sorry, you would have to present, uh, let's say, cross-correlations, yeah. or um, previously we looked at these replay sequences during sleep, where you, you do mm -hmm. see actually hippocampal play cells firing first, and then the reward action cells in, in the mm -hmm. uh, striatum. Um, so, yeah, yeah you, you have to do these tighter correlations in the spike balance. No, but what yeah. I'm after is that I, I thought that what you were after was to say, okay, ventral striatum has a response that's maybe action-dominated, but it has a spatial component, right? It's not devoid of space. And whether, mm -hmm. whether this, this space, the, the specificity for place in the ventral striatum was in some way dependent on, on the hippocampus or not. Yeah, but that's really a minority of cells that have this spatial specificity. Okay. It could arise on the one hand by very sparse firing, so mm -hmm. it's kind of an undersampling problem where some of the spikes happen to end up in more in one of the chambers mm -hmm. than the other. Um, yeah, the other possibility is really that you have some kind of heritage of the place cells. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at least in a setting where you eliminate the local cues and you make the behavior dependent on path integration, um, uh, we think it's more um, that the uh, ventral shadow cells take the hippocampal input and translate it into a current reward prediction and mm -hmm. base directions on it. If that action means initiate a, an approach to a goal site, mm. then that will generalize across uh, all the chambers in which to make that action. So it Mm -hmm. It's not really spatially specific. Or okay. It's not, yeah. So it's really more policy dependent or action specific. It says, look, right. when I see this light to the right, I turn left. That's a great thing to do, and I will do it wherever I am. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But now the other thing that you, that you observed, which, which I found very curious, 
is that there was a modulation of the of the size of this place field in the hippocampus uh, by reward itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we saw is that uh, these nine reward sites tend to have occupancy of micro place fields, mm -hmm. whereas uh, you don't see these micro place fields in the bigger non-rewarded compartments of the maze. Mm -hmm. How do you explain uh, that? Uh, well, on the one hand, they're extremely relevant sites, so it, it's really important for the rat to know where to stick your nose in precisely. So a finer spatial scaling could be very useful. Uh, and it's also coupled to more specific sm uh, small-scale behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, licking while you, you, you approach the site, um, the rat would have to stop. That's already a deceleration motion in a small stretch of space. Uh, then the licking behavior, then waiting mm -hmm. for a certain while before the reward comes, and then licking. So it, it's actually there's a lot happening. Um, mm -hmm. which all probably has to be uh, coded somewhere. Yeah. So you're saying if we would replot place field size versus something like behavioral complexity, exactly. it should give us a fairly uniform curve. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, complexity on the x-axis yeah. and um, the inverse of size on the y-axis exactly. give you a straight mm -hmm. line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Much. Yeah. Um, is, that a known, is that a known feature of these hippocampal place cells? Uh, no, not really. No, mm -hmm. no. So, yeah, uh, there have been studies that showed a greater density of um, place fields around important sites, mm -hmm. like the hidden platform in the Morris, Morris water maze. Mm -hmm. uh, it attracts more or less more place fields. But it could be that uh, this involves the same phenomenon. So if, we, if you have a broad coverage of the space by big place fields and uh, coverage by small place fields, if the sites are really relevant, mm -hmm. uh, then you end up with a higher density of, of place fields. Right. But now the other thing that that that, I'm, that was interesting is that there also seems to be a correlation between the peak firing rate in the place field and the size of the place field. Right? So that's also mm. there. The, the, it, uh, apparently the, the larger size of uh, place fields also gave you higher peak frequency than the small size place fields. I mean, are, are these kinds of correlations intuitive to you? Or d does this make sense? Uh, we haven't systematically looked at it. Mm -hmm. it. It could be the case. and You would have to go through the entire set of cells to see if there's a relation. Um, it, it does make a little bit of sense in the sense that the way you define a place field or when you plot a bright yellow spot... Um, mm -hmm. Is, is somewhat correlated to the absolute firing rate. Mm -hmm. uh, so if a cell um, sort of has a dynamic range from 0 to 20 hertz, um, and the 0 is kept for most part of the maze except in one chamber, mm -hmm. um, then uh, um, uh, it's more likely to sell that the cell uh, passes the threshold for the place field uh, more easily, so to mm -hmm. say, utilizing the entire dynamic range. Right. So now the other thing that you that you mentioned is that um, you have this notion that there is an, that there's something like a state transition occurring in these neurons, both in hippocampus and ventral striatum. Mm -hmm. So what does that really mean? Uh, I think the interesting aspect about it is that uh, it's a global population measure, so there's no single cell that easily dominates uh, such state transitions. Uh, and yet they are coherent because you see them happening um, in a lot of cells, at least uh, there are marked 
firing rate changes at the point of state transition or close to it. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to be a population phenomenon that both works in one structure and the other. And then the most interesting is that tho those are correlated also. Mm -hmm. So uh, Yeah, but I don't really understand the phenomenon. I mean, so you, here you have your recording of, of large numbers of cells. And how many? How big is your pool of neurons you're doing this analysis on? Uh, this Wyman's data set is, is about 600 neurons. Okay, so it's yeah. plenty of so neurons, right? Mm. And now y you sort, you are sorting these neurons on a, on a specific metric, mm -hmm. right? And, and that then gives you this notion of, of phase transition. But what's this metric on which you sort your, your neurons? Yeah, so basically if, if you would have 10 cells, you make a 10-dimensional space, mm -hmm. and then you plot your spatial bind firing rates into that space all the 10 neurons mm -hmm. and you, you cluster it basically based on uh, k-means is yeah it can be likened to maximizing the euclidean distance between mm -hmm. the clusters okay so you s yes you seek for the best partitioning mm -hmm. plane okay um and yeah so that that's what you do but um remarkably it, it's not some kind of arbitrary cut because the cells are visibly sensitive to it not all of them but uh uh, I would say a majority of the cells do react in advance of the state switch mm -hmm. or have a reaction afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I we would have predicted here that uh, an event like the Q flipping on, well, might have some effect on the hippocampus, mm -hmm. but would be more strongly felt at the ventral level because mm -hmm. our psychological colleagues would tell us, well, it's the amygdala that mm -hmm. does the transmission of this motivational cue. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a bit of a surprise to see that the impact on the hippocampus is that big, whereas mm -hmm. it does not disrupt the finer spatial code, mm -hmm. um, because it's expressed as a remapping effect. So, but it also means in your physiology of this, uh, in the population recording, you would also see an instantaneous transient across all the cells you're measuring from in some sense or a, a big subset of them yeah but um if you just look at the plane recordings as they're going on mm -hmm. and the rat mm -hmm. is doing its task yeah. uh it might not be that obvious mm -hmm. because it's it's very hard to listen to all these tens of neurons at the same time right exactly mm -hmm. so that's why it's handy to uh to have this algorithm to do it for you mm -hmm. um and yeah I, I should also emphasize that it's not only the the cue lights that do it, so that there are sort of a strong trigger for a state switch, but you also see uh, significant enhancement of the switches when the rat enters a, uh -huh. a chamber. So when he sort of knows, uh, I'm going now into a direction where I'm close to the reward. Right. And, uh, but now is, is the, um, are these neurons really do, doing something qualitatively different before and after this, this transition, this phase transition? Like they, they change their average frequency or they shut off completely or they turn on? Uh, yeah, sometimes they switch off completely. So th there are some cells that in one state have a place field and the other state not. Mm -hmm. But usually it's it's a bit more subtle. So you, you would, for instance, have a, uh, a gain modulation of a factor two or so, mm -hmm. or three, and sometimes a shift in the place field. So, uh, right. and, and also at the ventral stradal level. Um, so the yeah the upshot of this is that we we shouldn't only look at single cell detailed coding, but um, also have the uh, the global population picture, which says okay, there's another uh, type of coding change going mm -hmm. on 
which right exactly yeah. but then what's your functional interpretation of this um the f functional interpretation would be to say well there's again this scaffold you might say of basal coding uh, mm -hmm. in this hippocampus in the spatial task that is uh, a spatial layout uh, but you, uh, then again you can attach or associate events on top of that which mm -hmm. which do things to your basal code mm -hmm. uh, same it's thing for a comments uh, yeah but if you think about it 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 makes sense i i think because um for an episodic memory it's very useful to have a, a sort of basal spatio-temporal framework mm -hmm. onto which you can tag important events that need to be remembered um so in other words uh, it's kind of handy to to have a scaffold to build your memory mm -hmm. on um mm -hmm. Uh, in the artificial way that Romans had a memory art, they imagined themselves walking into a house mm -hmm. and uh, storing things in caches in the wall or mm -hmm. behind doors as a way to remember. And maybe that could be a metaphor for how this mm -hmm. scaffolding mechanism works. Okay, but then and then you see this what you call a phase transition as as a signature of this kind of uh, let's say attaching specific cues to into that scaffold. Right. Yeah. Or is the yeah. scaffold yeah. itself? The scaffold in the hippocampus here would be the the basal spatial coding, mm -hmm. the, the rate maps and, and place fields mm -hmm. of all the cells. Yeah. In this case, you you do have a very important event because it totally drives the animal's behavior and, and mm -hmm. um, it becomes not known as as an association to one little place field, but rather, well, this cue appears in the whole space really. mm -hmm. yeah, the animal can clearly see it so right. it becomes more of an overriding event that impinges on the global coding and that would be modulated by something something like a reward prediction because the Q light comes on y yeah 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 we don't know uh, how that would happen mm -hmm. it could be driven by the by the visual system which initially takes in the visual information mm -hmm. uh, but at some higher level of visual processing says this is a reward mm. predicting queue. Right. Um, could also happen at the prefrontal level or at many places. Mm -hmm. So now you observe this, this what you call phase transition. I'm not sure if phase transition is a good label, really, but okay, let, let, let's keep it for now. Um, okay. You see it both in ventral striatum and hippocampus, two areas that, that are densely coupled. And you also looked at the cross-correlation mm -hmm. of, of these events. So, so what did that tell you? Uh, the interesting th thing there to see is that um, the state transitions, al although they are computed uh, only locally for each structure, are still correlated mm -hmm. with each other. And it could be at least par partly externally driven because the, the Q event uh, occurs at one moment and could trigger uh, state transitions in both structures. Uh, but apart from the Q events, there are also other lots of more spontaneous transitions, mm -hmm. uh, which do appear still to be highly correlated. So um, for, it doesn't mean per se that the hippocampus switches first and then predicts mm -hmm. its altered spike patterns to the accumbens. That could be. It could also be indicating that these state transitions are a more global phenomenon, mm -hmm. in also involving other cortical areas like right. the prefrontal cortex but then how about so an alternative interpretation so they say well look you know the animal sits here in this in this y maze there's nothing better to do 
a cue comes on and I just have a, a non-specific attentional effect orienting response because something changed in the world. So it's not specific in any way to the task, to uh, reward prediction, just something changed in the world. I have a non-specific attentional effect and that's this highly synchronized uh, phase transition that you observe. Uh, yeah, um, let's see. Well, we um, we don't have some other uh, secondary kind of cue that would signal um, Azra still has to do something else. Um, and we, we don't have a way to probe whether this is selective attention. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's possible. But, yeah, if, if I would talk here about a motivational cue that subsumes attention, this mm -hmm. sort of a change in the animal state, motivational attention. Yeah, state. One, one thing, so you would predict if you would switch a cue light that has never ever been coupled to reward, mm -hmm. so it's no, a neutral cue light, you should not see this this phase transition. Uh, it would be very hard to have it totally neutral because a novel stimulus is also interesting and or either scary or interesting. Yeah, to but explore. not equally. Yeah. It should not be equally leading to reward predictions. Yeah. So that means yeah. especially the phase transitions in the ventral striatum should then be sort of not there because there are no, no yeah. sense of reward. Yeah, this would be an interesting experiment. You could say, well, I'm taking a second cue maybe of a different light mm -hmm. or a sound cue that is loud enough. And at one point it's novel, but then you keep on repeating it with the mm -hmm. same loudness and the animal learns to ignore it because it's right. irrelevant. Yeah, and then see what happens. That will be the control test. Yeah, experiment. yeah, yeah. Okay. But I would predict that if there's this learned irrelevance about it, that the state transitions at least become weaker or mm -hmm. less frequent. Right. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so so now we have this this idea of the of the transition, and but the other thing that that made me worry about um, an alternative interpretation is that the the latency that you saw between the, 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 the straight transition, transitions in hippocampus and ventral stratum appeared very short. They seemed really practically synchronous mm -hmm. in, in, in this, this change of their overall dynamics. And then I, I could argue, well, look, that, that's the perfect signature of a non-specific attentional global signal that sort of engages all these systems in parallel with zero latency difference between them. Mm -hmm. Right. So have you worried yeah. about that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we did um, try to define our bins in an even on an even finer scale, mm -hmm. uh, but we also found that yeah, this estimation of local firing rates works best in let's say a resolution of hundred milliseconds. Mm -hmm. If you go below it, it becomes uh, a little bit messier and, and more noisy. Um, so we can actually only say that these joint state transitions occur. Um, with a resolution of around 100 milliseconds mm -hmm. or a bit less. And uh, that's not enough to say whether the hippocampus would really switch first and then the uh, commons. But uh, but actually, you could check this in the data you have, right? Um, yeah, we could do more detailed analysis, for instance, um, using more single spikes or that's right, exactly. count the number of spikes per theta cycle right. or so as the rat moves mm -hmm. along. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. As you, I mean, the expected latency um if, if look the, the the loop as you described it is uh ca1 uh, subiculum in the hippocampus to your ventral striatum right and then 
you have you have a latency a transduction latency in in that projection of about 25 milliseconds mm -hmm. so that means you would expect a very specific patterning of this phase transition if if this is the the projection that's actually engaged yeah yeah and of course at the level of the stratum you you will have uh, easily converging uh, activity from the amygdala prefrontal cortex and, and thalamus mm -hmm. Um, so in a way, if there is striatal firing, the correlation to hippocampal activity might be partial. Okay, uh, but you you can you can do this, yeah, basically. Yeah. No, look, yeah. but, but but in some simple-minded uh, view, you could say, well, if the source is in hippocampus, then this is the latency you should see. This is yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. Would it yeah, be we could certainly. Uh, Try to resolve that at let's say the time scale of well, the theta cycle is actually around hundred milliseconds, mm -hmm. but it could be maybe happening also in the gamma cycles somewhere. Sure, twenty mm -hmm. milliseconds or so, maybe that works. But, yeah. but, but would such a post hoc control now be still be worth your while, or you think this is really doesn't matter anymore? This is, this story is done now. You move on. Um, well, the analysis as we did it now, uh, especially Jaden Jackson was already quite extensive, but more trying to tease out whether um, these state transitions really correlate to a motivational change or motivational mm -hmm. attentional change of the animal. Right. So the additional analyses he did were more directed at finding out whether, for instance, the chamber entry makes a difference in the state switches. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's also interesting to see if that the animal, I didn't show the data, but yeah, if the animal approaches the reward side, then actually the state transitions, uh, the rate of switching decreases in the accumbens. Mm -hmm. uh, that might be because the network is converging to a stable state of, of let's say, solid reward prediction. You know, you're there, you made it, and now mm -hmm. you, <laughs> you can stop. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Whereas in... Um, uh, similar non-rewarded behaviors, where, where there's an intertrial interval, no cue, and the animal makes the same approach, you see a higher switch rate, mm -hmm. as if it also reflects uncertainty or, uh, uh, let's say, ambiguity in the system. Mm -hmm. It keeps on flipping right. back and forth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now the, the next part, so now we have a bit of an idea how, how this mental stratum hippocampal system um, might be combining, let's say, value reward information with information about space and Q. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, and in some sense, indeed, what we had, what you, in those experiments didn't look at in too much detail was really how could these components of the nervous system, these modules of the nervous system really exchange information. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the next part of your, of your presentation where you, where you actually emphasize very much this notion of, of neural oscillations, and, and spike coherence, so very much a dynamics-oriented perspective on, on communication. Yeah. Uh, so, so what are the main considerations to, to sort of actually look in that direction at this sort of intermodule communication and not just at, let's say, rate coding? Okay, yeah. Um, when we purely compare rate codes of one area to the next, um, it's a little bit hard to say that there's actually uh, an influence directly uh, in the way of um, a phase relationship or a cross correlation mm -hmm. could be could be done at the spike level, but usually within an area, let's say pyramidal cell and interneuron can, can have a very tight cross correlation, but between areas it becomes uh, easily sloppy or mm -hmm. not so uh, well defined uh, the delays and so. On. 
so I uh, do think that yeah, the, the oscillations are an interesting uh, way of looking at um, the communication mechanisms. Mm -hmm. uh, although, of course, yeah, like I illustrated for gamma, it's certainly not guaranteed that oscillations per se are important. Mm -hmm. um, the gammas right. uh, precisely show that probably they have a local uh, function in the network and are not for this long-range hippocampal to sensory mm -hmm. cortex communication. Right. But you emphasize also this relationship between local field potential and, for instance, e EPSPs, or mm -hmm. um, possible impact on, on plasticity through spark time-dependent learning. Mm -hmm. So, so what other attractive features do you see in this sort of uh, this synchronization view on, on communication? Uh, well, one advantage of uh, synchronization. Uh, is is that if you have strong synchronization, uh, a, a network that does that is in a better position to af affect a target mm -hmm. area or a common cell, for instance, where the cells converge upon. Um, <clears throat> if the synchronization at least happens in the gamma range, you're talking about uh, spike timing differences of in the order of 10 milliseconds mm -hmm. or so, because otherwise you're covering the whole gamma cycle. And th then you get into the range of one spike eliciting an EPSP with at least with the tail should overlap with the next EPSP mm -hmm. 10 milliseconds later. Uh, so that's an interesting range for EPSP starting to summate mm -hmm. uh, and uh, generating spikes. So uh, at the same time, uh, if one cell generates an EPSP and the next one an IPSP, you only get very short lasting mm -hmm. excitations. Um, and then, yeah, this. Time scale of, of gammas uh, correlates quite well with the time range where you would see spike timing dependent plasticity. And mm -hmm. uh, there's some uh, nice work by uh, Laurent where he indeed shows that uh, spike timing uh, regulated in the gamma range uh, more or less uh, does indeed alter synaptic responses. Mm -hmm. so, uh, Right, it is a realistic scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then if you th so here here we here we have let's say a, a communication channel between two areas in the brain. It's organized along some temporal dynamics, some 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 temporal code. Mm -hmm. What kind of code do you really have in mind? I mean, how complex would this code be? Is it really just like I have like a carrier wave and that? that that let's say enslaves all my target neurons to oscillate in a certain frequency, and then I can sort of more efficiently mm -hmm. inject uh, EPSPs or create EPSPs there. Or how complex is this temporal code then in your in your mind? Yeah, well, uh, in my mind, uh, there's also the debate of what this could do. Um, on the one hand, um, gamma oscillation or other oscillation could be useful to. Uh, bring the notion of iterations into the system. So we say uh, we make a processing step, all the local neurons interact with each other and recompute their firing rate uh, at the end of the cycle. Then there's a stop, maybe also to allow the system to communicate with other areas and get feedback, uh, which allows the next iteration to mm -hmm. happen. Uh, so th this could be a, a functional notion of why there is also an inhibition <laughs> in between. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is is to parcelate information to make ordered sequences. Like yeah. you, you want some discretization in the system of place all ordering or uh, sensory information ordering. 
uh, not uh, sort of happening in a jambalaya with mm -hmm. every cell overlapping with every other cell. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, ordering and sequencing could be a real function. Okay. And then um, what I alluded to was also the notion of phase coding, so that there is, besides global rates, additional information in when the sparks are fired. Mm -hmm. um, of course, with the prime example of theta phase procession in the hippocampus, right. uh, where you mm -hmm. can really decode quite accurately the position of the animal from, from phasing of the spikes. Um, but theoretically, I also couple that to um, employing different modes of coding, actually, uh, because whereas you might need your rate code for feature coding, uh, representing, oh, I have a cell here, it's a simple cell for orientation, mm -hmm. and right now that orientation is very appropriate to code, so we drive at the firing rate. The other thing could be to shift that firing, actually, and then you create an additional phase code where that simple cell uh, relates to other cells, so it causally influences the phasing of other cells and mm -hmm. project backwards. Okay, but now actually, so, so these are the possible scenarios, right? But you, you actually went in there and you, you measured from quite a number of areas. Um, so what was the real setup you, you, you build up there? Which areas did you measure from to test these ideas? And what was the task the animal had to perform? Yeah, so the task was to um, train rats on this discrimination task, with the visual stimuli being a discriminandum. Uh, or at least the positioning of uh, CS plus versus CS minus stimulus would be the thing to be discriminated by the rats, determining their left or right choices, mm -hmm. with the addition of tactile cues, uh, also tickling the, the whisker or barrel cortex, um, because these were sandpaper cues where the rat would pass by and gain information about future amounts of reward. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the idea, and by recording from both the visual cortex and barrel cortex, we can get an idea of, of how they interact. So, for instance, does the appearance of the visual stimulus um, affect also barrel activity, uh, whisking activity? Um, that would also be in line with a prediction from yeah, the, uh, a hypothesis on multimodal integration, which I proposed a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and which uh, also relates to to consciousness or how modalities are actually coded. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the additional areas are the perirhinal and hippocampus to look at this, let's say, potentially forward propagation of sensory information into the MTL hippocampal memory system mm -hmm. with the additional hypothesis that um, at some point when the hippocampus start replaying, the sequence might come back out and mm -hmm. reach back to the neocortex again in reverse okay. order. But how does this relate to consciousness? Oh, this last part does okay. not. No, oh, okay, no, does not. no. Okay. Well, uh, indirectly perhaps, because <clears throat> if we would accept that, let's say, notions of recognition are also part of your conscious experience, mm -hmm. uh, then things like perirhinal feedback to the neocortex uh, could be very relevant. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But um, I, I, I would also maintain that if you lose uh, the hippocampus, you're still conscious. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So now, um, the the point is that now we have uh, you, you looked at four areas, right? We have the somatosensory cortex, uh, CA1 in the hippocampus. You have primary right. visual cortex. You have perirhinal cortex. Okay, and they they also cleanly organized in an anterior posterior 
axes, right? So, so I, I guess you also did it on purpose so you can actually measure from them in a, in a reliable way. Um, so now, uh, then you developed a new measure that helps you to sort of look at these phase relationships between mm -hmm. these different areas, uh, which you called the WPLI, the Weighted Phase Locking Index, which, yep. which looked um, very interesting. Um, and then what did you find? Okay, well, yeah, so uh, I confined the story today to gamma rhythms, uh, which are these high frequency, roughly 40 to 80 hertz uh, oscillations. Um, well, the first point of contention is to what extent uh, the somatosensory cortex generates the gammas. Visual cortex is less contentious. Um, we find that there are clear gammas. They're enhanced during active behavior. This might correspond to active or passive whisking. Um, and in addition, the gammas are, are quite local, so uh, at least the co coherence of different field potentials um, uh, is, is high within the local area of the mm -hmm. somatosensory cortex, uh, but not, uh, let's say, somatosensory to visual coherence is almost non-existent or mm -hmm. very low. And the same for perirhinal somatosensory, somatosensory mm -hmm. to hippocampal. Whereas if gamma would be really a central mechanism for communication between all brain areas, sort of in a very global, mm -hmm. brain-wide fashion, uh, this would not be expected. Were you surprised by that outcome? Did that surprise you? Um, not really, no. No. Not really, because uh, yeah, on the one hand, there have been previous findings on inter-aerial gamma coherence in the visual system. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, not all, all of those studies corrected for potential volume conduction problems. A lot of studies did not have the spikes in there to show that the gamma is really local. Mm -hmm. Local cells are entrained to it. Um, and so there are all kinds of way, ways to buy out of this idea of global gamma synchronization. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, um, our findings mm -hmm. do not contradict a sort of short-range. Right, exactly. Now, this is, yeah. I think this this is the key thing that that you observed, right? That in all these areas you measured from, you found strong local uh, coherence in gamma. Mm -hmm. So that means the neurons you're measuring from are all happily firing together in a gamma range, right? At some phase relationship to each other. Yeah. But you do not find. A similar coherence between these areas okay right yeah so yeah. so yeah. Th there's so a positive control the, the areas do have gamma but not right exactly with each other. Yeah, exactly yeah. but so this raises a number of interesting issues because so so how do you then look upon this this let's first look at the areas individually mm -hmm. so if you compare let's say v1 with somatosensory or perirhinal or hippocampus ca1 is that dynamics in the gamma range really very different between these areas? Uh, between the somatosensory and visual mm -hmm. cortex, not very much. Mm -hmm. No, no. They both have mm -hmm. similar gamma range. They show good phase locking. Uh, in the hippocampus and perirhinal, the theta becomes very strong. Mm -hmm. In the slipstream of theta, you also see beta, which is roughly double the frequency, mm -hmm. so 16, 20 hertz. Um, so there are clearly different things going on. The okay. So it means in hippocampus you see more a, a chopping of the gamma because of this theta rhythm. So yes, yeah, so you see a few spikes in gamma, and then the system shuts down for a little bit, and then it comes back again. And that right. choppiness you would not see in in V1 or perirhinal. Uh, uh, perirhinal also has a 
quite strong theta rhythm together with the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Probably the, the gammas there are locked to the theta cycle, so they are not mm -hmm. going on all, uh, all okay. uh, throughout. Um, uh, the, the visual cortex tends to have strong gamma during the visual stimulation, mm -hmm. uh, but also during the movement, because actually the scene of the rat is right. totally or always changing. So uh, that means, that so, so with the measurements you did, there we have these two cortical areas that, that really show their own kind of gamma dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have these more hippocampal related areas where, where sort of theta starts to dominate the dynamics much more. So we have two kinds of subsystems yeah, we're looking yeah, at. Yeah. Um, so how do you then explain this, the, the, this gamma dynamics in cortex? So how is this generated? Right. Uh, we know from the visual cortex that stimuli can drive the gamma. Um, and so we presume, but uh, cannot directly prove in, in this case, that also whisking movements or other somatosensory stimuli would drive the, the gamma in addition um, uh the gamma could be enhanced, for instance, by attentional processes or prefrontal feedback to the area, uh, because that's also been shown in monkey studies. Um, and, yeah, uh, the the factors driving the strong gamma coherence locally, uh, I, I don't think can be precisely disentangled here, because mm -hmm. during the active movement phase, there's lots of things going on, so visual input, reward well, expectation. But yeah. wait, I think you can say something about it, no? Because you, um, you have distinguished uh, the different neural types involved in this. And you could uh, distinguish the inhibitory interneurons from your excitatory pyramidal cells. Yep. And you also found very specific phase relationships between them. Oh, and the, yeah, in terms of the local circuits, we, yeah. we can make statements. Yeah, yeah. So there were two interneuron classes. Uh, these are the fast spikers. Mm -hmm. That's the way you identify them in extracellular recordings. The broad spikers are more like pyramidal cells, uh, maybe some stellate cells. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there the special finding is that uh, there are two classes of interneurons. One fires early in the gamma cycle, one late. Yeah. Uh, whereas the pyramidal cells fire in between. So there's one class of interneurons um, that fire early and they're firing to the gamma or the entrainment to the gamma couplet be easily explained by... Uh, pre-firing of the pyramidal cells. So that uh, more points to an uh, interneuron network gamma mm -hmm. mechanism, the ING mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the late cells could more uh, be involved in recurrent uh, inhibition driven by the mm -hmm. pyramidal cells. But would you yeah. see these early inhibitory cells as I say a separate network of more like master controllers of the gamma? Um... Well, there's certainly the earliest cells to fire in the gamma cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we think happens is that there's local excitatory input to these interneurons that excites them, uh, but not from the, uh, the same local population of pyramidal cells. Um, they do inhibit each other, but in the rebound of this inhibition, uh, they can also become excited. Mm -hmm. So there's rebound excitation or once the shunting inhibition is lost. And some of these interneuron classes have gap junctions. Mm -hmm. So if one spikes, uh, it can trigger or stimulate firing in the in the gap junction coupled cell, uh, non-synaptically. So uh, that could explain why there is a class of early firing cells. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. But so they they are exclusively coupled with gap junctions that would allow very rapid transduction with their fellow inhibitory early cells. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we, we don't um, have an identification of what those cells are, whether mm -hmm. those VIP into neurons or somatostatin or mm -hmm. basket or chandelier cells, but there seem to be various classes that mm -hmm. uh, could conform to this ink scheme of interneuron-driven right, gamma. Exactly. Yeah. So but that, that might mean you have, let's say, a real, uh, a very tightly coupled network of interneurons mm -hmm. that are sort of locally initiating then a pyramidal interneuron-driven gamma oscillation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could be that the pyramidal cells start firing because they come out of that inhibition or because they receive additional excitation from other mm -hmm. areas, uh, but then most likely also excite each other mm -hmm. locally. That's but that, that would suggest that you also should see a spatial parcellation or fragmentation of this gamma oscillation in, in the red cortex. Is that true? Um, yeah, what people find generally is more gamma superficially in the superficial layers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, here, uh, I have to say, we did r uh, record also deep, and there you also see some gamma, uh, but these were not laminar mm -hmm. probes, so mm -hmm. we don't have an exact identification right. of the depth. So now, so, so now we have learned a lot about local gamma, which is really cool. Okay. Okay. Thank you. But it turns out it has nothing to do with your original question, because you wanted to know about interaerial communication, which you believe will be in gamma, and it's not. It's at least okay. a negative. Say, well, okay, it's not no, gamma. It should be something else. That's my <laughs> question. So what is it? Yeah. Um, uh, I think there are two possibilities. Uh, we're, we're now looking at theta and beta ranges for communication. Uh, those seem to be working, especially for the hippocampus pyrrhinal mm -hmm. system. Uh, but sometimes during some behavioral phases there, we see beta coherence with the sensory cortices. Right. So maybe mm -hmm. we're looking in too high a frequency range. It could also be the case that um, uh, the really long-range interest, um, long interesting stuff is, is in desynchronized assemblies. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, because, you know, conscious processing goes on in a largely desynchronized EEG state, it's not a given that it should happen in a Mm -hmm. in an oscill oscillation mode. Well, this is an interesting consequence, right? Because maybe by looking for synchronized states, they're maybe not as ordered as a rate code, but they are fairly ordered, and maybe that's still not the way to think about it. So if you really have to make a bet, do you think you're going to find any kind of informational coupling at lower frequency ranges? Do you think that's, that's really plausible? Uh, yeah, in terms of phasing... That could well be. Um, in, a, in a way, we, we see that in theta phase precession. But despite the low frequency of the theta rhythm, uh, there is distinct information coding in the phase. Well, but is it, it modulates it still on top of a gamma code, right? Otherwise, uh, yeah, there's nothing yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the local gamma codes in visual cortex, for instance, also have some phase coding in the sense that... Uh, there is stimulus information in the phase mm -hmm. that has been uh, shown also. Uh, but it might also be that um, most of the information transmission is effective in a desynchronized mode. That is, mm -hmm. you still have synchronous spiking assemblies, but they're sparse. They're not having a particular special relationship to the mass synaptic potentials mm -hmm. because there are just too few of them. You wouldn't pick them out. Uh, and, yeah, by their regular axonal projections, they, they reach their targets um and that's that's also still a viable scenario I right say. but a bit a messy one 
It, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you would like to have, you know, gain control right. over that. Uh, mm -hmm. The oscillations might But then be. in, your, in the, your picture on this, would you still believe that in, at least these pathways are highly coordinated? That means, let's say, it runs all over the thalamus, so at least there's only one hub doing this. Well, on the other hand, where we earlier talked about the ventral striatum or hippocampus, you see they have convergent input from many different areas, mm -hmm. right? So, so would you still think about some anatomical ordering of this very divergent phase code, or uh, do you also see that as fairly open, like many different anatomical channels providing these kinds of codes to different to all parts of the brain? Yeah, that's a uh, difficult one. Yeah, so like in the visual system, you do recognize mappings, or mm -hmm. sometimes retinotopic, sometimes craniotopic, but lots of lots of mappings. And uh, I think I think it's actually a key question: how or whether um, neurons on similar locations of uh, maps in this in the same framework communicate better with each other. So. Uh, so that you would kind of use the spatial location of a feature as a also a binding queue to mm -hmm. uh, make it belong to some other queue at the same location. So if, if we don't have a correspondence between uh, spatial mappings or retinotopic mm -hmm. mappings, um, uh, it seems an intrinsic problem of how you right. piece things together. Mm -hmm. in no, space. but it's interesting, yeah. right? Because you're looking for order in some sense, and you, you also started with this modular view. Like we have modules. Modules have their local operations. Mm -hmm. They're encapsulated informationally. And they have to be, otherwise it's not a module. Mm -hmm. And then in a very ordered way, they exchange information with each other. Like hippocampus might send place information to the ventral striatum, right. and the ventral striatum does something about the reward prediction. And then, uh, I mean, you, you follow a very logical process there. And then you said, like, okay, let's see how then these structures really exchange this information. Mm -hmm. And then actually you don't find anything. So, so is this whole modular scheme you originally proposed maybe already looking in the wrong direction? Is the brain really that cleanly modular as you were would like to have it being an experimentalist <laughs> who actually has to know where to go, right? Yeah, well, uh, the position I tried to defend was that it's modular and also not modular. So that there, there, are, there are also modulations like this uh, state switching on mm -hmm. top of everything that uh indicate that there might be some more global modulation going on where that comes from we we don't know yet it could be thalamus or cortical or maybe prefrontal driven but uh um yeah there there are certain events in the system that can happen and switch multiple structures at the same time that uh, what yeah. what would such an event be well um in the case of the hippocampus and ventral striatum um, where uh, the cue, the light that switches on, uh, would signal to the rat, like, okay, you, uh, you can go now. There's a reward to be obtained. And you could see the way that large parts of the brain and the body uh, have to do with this reward acquisition. So you, you better get going and, and mm -hmm. you know, change your system. It could be that... Uh, well, you, you do need a system that recognizes the relevance of the cue, this could be amygdaloid prefrontal, maybe earlier on, perirhinal maybe. Um, and yeah, for instance, the prefrontal is in a pretty good position to modulate these systems, mm -hmm. uh, projected directly into striatum, but also indirectly through the parahippocampus and perirhinal into the hippocampus. Uh, so at okay. least 
you know you have a pretty solid top-down mechanism there mm -hmm. to do it but speculation whether right but happens, then yeah. but still you're stable to say well it's modular and not modular you, you understand sounds somewhat paradoxical <laughs> yeah of course yeah mm. yeah yeah so but it, it, on the one hand you want to reconcile the evidence for local specialization because there's lesion evidence there's neural coding evidence on the other hand you say well hey but yeah there are also these overriding events that have common effects mm -hmm. in both places right so, so then yeah. um so sir you, you have been marching through this surrounded brain for quite a while now and <laughs> gained an incredible amount of knowledge about that system at the at the system level um but so then what what should be a surreal's law in our study of the brain hmm that's a good one <laughs> um a general law yeah um mm, mm, mm. Uh, i think that anything meaningful that happens in the brain is is a network phenomenon that would be my law mm -hmm. yeah okay cool that that you know single cells that fire don't mean anything <laughs> yeah, they don't signify mm -hmm. uh you're not conscious of it it's just mm -hmm. uh you know noise yeah, mm -hmm. or at least we yeah we, ha we have to look at it from uh, at a higher level i think very good yeah, yeah. and then so five years from now i'm gonna come up to amsterdam and i'm gonna confront you with a hypothesis you're gonna declare to me today um w so what's the what's the, the key prediction that you see in front of your mind's eye right now that you know you're going to have confirmed five years from now? Mm, that better be a very low-level, easy prediction. <laughs> yes, uh, it usually turns out another way. Um, a prediction that could be confirmed in five years from now. Um, something ambitious and imp yeah, impressive. Yeah, not something... Right? small petty thing like gamma rhythm nah. yeah you can do better than that <laughs> <laughs> um well what we're uh working on a lot is, is multimodal integration these days but also um uh, perception actually in in rats and, and mice uh so we do have these four area recordings also going on in uh let's say lower and higher visual areas including mm -hmm. cingulate and parietal and there I would predict that uh, uh, visual perception, uh, as we also link it to consciousness, um, involves the discrete uh, and repeated uh, iterative interactions between lower and higher areas, but um, not exclusively in a top-down fashion. Look, you're being rather demanding on my short-term memory here. So what's the prediction? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, basically that um, uh, visual perception also uh, is a network phenomenon that uh, not only depends on mm, high to low level mm -hmm. feedback, in this case for the visual system, um, but should be more viewed as um, uh, an, yeah, an ongoing short-lasting reverberation mm -hmm. also involving right. the higher systems. Okay, very good. So, Cyril Pennart, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, Paul, as well. <laughs>
project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.